Hey everyone, I just wanted to let you know that today's episode will be the first part of an extended pandemic discussion, and we will be releasing the other parts weekly. Uh, we'll be discussing the epistemology of pandemic, the difficulty in weighing the immediate health risks against the long-term economic risks, and finally, the ways that having economic inequality and insecurity makes the whole situation much worse. We hope everyone is able to stay home and stay safe, and if you are at home with nothing to do, you can always take a minute to give us a five-star rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, follow us on Twitter, etc., etc. Look, I haven't asked for anything like that in a while. Anyways, we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Badlands, that overlooked place where philosophical thought runs into the political concerns of the day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Napolitano, and with me this week, we've got Hannah Gunn. How you doing, Hannah? Pretty tired. Pretty tired. And also, Michael Hughes. How's it going, Michael? I, I Last week, I said that this would be the worst year on record. Uh, I feel like that prediction's bearing out. You're doing pretty well. So. Now, there was a hope after the last episode when, you know, we were saying... Uh, after we did our episode on Joe Biden, he had a miraculous turnaround. Maybe Bernie Sanders will also have a miraculous turnaround. That has not happened, and instead we find ourselves in the grip of a global pandemic. So good job with your prediction, yep. Michael. You nailed it. Thank you. I feel so good about that. <laughs> so this week we we wanted to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. I guess sort of what's happening, some of the interesting epistemic angles with respect to it, and also the ways in which economic inequality interact with this whole thing, both with respect to differences in how different populations experience the pandemic, and also how inequality uh, in some ways makes it much more difficult to combat the, the virus in the first place. So I guess, why don't we just get started with where we are? I suspect most people have a pretty good idea of what's going on. I suspect our audience is not... Uh, very low information. <laughs> they, they probably have a good sense. Uh, again, um, we're in the, the grip of a pandemic. Um, cases in the United States have really spiked in the past couple of weeks, particularly in New York, but all over the place. We're, pro- we're on pace to pass Italy probably fairly soon as the country with the most cases in the world. I would guess we're also going to pass China and probably we will have the most cases in the world in, I don't know, not to the not too distant future. Someone needs to tell Americans that there isn't a gold medal for this. We like to go we're... big or go home. Yeah, no, I've heard that. Yeah, I was, I was about to shout, "We're number one," but uh... <laughs> not yet. We're not, we're not there. <laughs> but we're um, going to be, guys. Believe yeah. in something. It's been truly fascinating, right? Because there was just a couple weeks ago, it was like, you know, there was concern. This could be a problem. It, you know, it blew up in China, but then it kind of slowed down. Uh, you know, South Korea had a bunch of cases early on, but they've been dealing with it. And it took a little while before um, things really exploded in the United States. Um, but then it they did, and it happened really quickly. And obviously, there's a lot to talk about with respect to precautions that were taken or not taken soon enough and the consequences of that. Um, we also, you know, want to talk about, you know, what what's going to be done and what the economic outlook is after the fact. There's a lot to talk about here. I guess the short story is the situation right now is very bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> both, uh, you know, uh, with respect to the health crisis, but also, as I just kind of indicated, we're in the midst of a basically an economic shutdown. 
uh, of a pretty <laughs> significant degree. And obviously, there's major concerns about really terrifying economic recession. We should mention, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday morning, the stimulus package, $2 trillion stimulus package was just passed overnight. So this will provide aid to workers who have lost wages, um, basically everyone making up to $99,000 a year, um, businesses, etc., to hopefully cushion the blow at least somewhat. Any any major things that I missed there? No, that I think pretty much covers it. Bad. New Zealand went into alert level four overnight as well. Out of how? Out of out of what? Four. Ah, shit. <laughs> do Do you guys actually have any um, deaths yet? Uh, no. There's a couple of hunts. So there's now like 200 cases, 205 cases. There were 50 added yesterday. So you guys are like getting out ahead of this and actually taking this seriously is what it seems like one hopes <laughs> well not clear you said there there really aren't that many um sort of the number of beds available etc it's pretty scant and and right what you just said was there's only like 50 cases added yesterday that's a lot if they only have 200 total cases that's kind of concerning actually mm. so it's kind of early on i would guess but at least start at level the- four Exactly. No, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. So we, we like we, we like to do things it. in colors. We do yellow, orange. Do we have amber? Or I that, think that's, amber that's is that's restricted. That's an amber alert. Yeah, yeah dude, that's, you're that's right. Good. That's a special class. Um, <laughs> it gets darker and darker. <laughs> yeah. Other grim statistics in the United States, anyways, and and this is largely a function of how fast uh, the infection is spreading. There are something like. There's slightly more than twice as many deaths as there are recoveries in the United States. I think this is largely because, well, A, I don't know much about how good um, recovery reporting is, but also it just takes a good amount of time. It seems like a lot of people have died fairly quickly, but it takes at least two weeks for people to recover. And there's so many new cases in the past couple of weeks. But that's a pretty grim but, statistic when you look at that. But presumably that is relative to the number of people who are actually t- being tested. Yeah. Right. And their testing is being done in such a limited way that there's obviously a selection effect for the most extreme cases. Yeah. Uh, show up in that data. Yeah. Which is, I mean, this is an aside, but partly what makes people really hesitant to give estimates on the overall sort of mortality rate. Um, really difficult right. to know at this point. Um, but high enough to be, you know, very concerning for <laughs> lots and lots of people. So uh, that's how things are. That's, you know, really quickly what's going on. Should we talk about the sort of epistemic angles and, you know, sort of how we got here? Well, I mean, I guess there's a couple things to say here. In the long term, as far as long term preparation goes, I suspect for most experts, it would, they take it to be very likely that something like this will happen at some point. For any given year, the odds are very low, but I suspect the consensus would be that, like, yes, you should expect some sort of serious epidemic or pandemic, however, you know, X number of years. Every documentary I've ever watched on it has always used the phrase, it's not a question of if, but when the next one will be. Right, so. which is which is the case for a lot of disasters, natural disasters of this sort. So there's a kind of long-term epistemic angle to take, but then there's a short-term epistemic angle where, again, we saw it was happening in China. There were a handful of cases in the United States, and there was kind of a wait-and-see approach, which in retrospect, may not have been the best course. And so there's interesting <laughs> questions as to, like, 
what should have been done, uh, and why? Why you know why did that happen? Yeah. So so why were we so reluctant to act early on? I, I think it's clear anyway that for the short term failings, those are rather obvious, and they bring to light the importance of things that philosophers talk about a lot, which is epistemic norms and social epistemology. That is the the norms that communities use to evaluate information and the importance of that. And this, the, our response to the information that was available highlights why it is so critical that you actually have norms in place where people actually trust experts. Because we really were getting two very different sets of information, or the American public was getting very different information depending on which sources they were listening to. Uh, we know that for weeks, people who were listening to Fox News were being told that this was being overblown by the experts, whereas the expert community was insisting that this uh, virus presented a unique danger that is very different from the other sort of pandemics or, or the uh, viruses that we were afraid of in the last couple of decades. As an aside, is the explanation for why they took this angle, um, I mean, is their general approach to just downplay any kind of, I guess, I guess their thought is they very much want to protect President Trump and his image. And the concern is that if there is some kind of terrible thing that happens, that reflects poorly on him. So the, if there is any uncertainty and you can downplay it, you should until that becomes impossible. Is that the explanation? I, I don't know what the explanation is, honestly, because you it's almost like you have to also believe your the angle you're taking because you're otherwise going to be proven wrong. Yeah, um, and your maybe, audience, which is very old, is extremely high risk. <clears throat> right. So, but maybe they maybe they're so cynical about their uh, the ability of the public to to reflect on the misinformation that they're spreading and to actually evaluate that that they don't actually think there will be repercussions for them if they misinform the public for months and lead to uh, and and have that lead to serious negative consequences, which clearly it is. So it's hard to tell, right? Do they actually did they believe that this was really overblown? Um, were they protecting Trump? The other question is, are they protecting economic interests? Right? right because that's what I was going to say, right? Because I mean, they've very clearly shown that they're quite you know economically focused we've got a lot of talk right now about the u.s at least potentially getting rid of or lifting some of these shelter in place orders in order to get people back to work and like there are different different harms one could focus on <laughs> with this kind of epidemic and so it could be i mean maybe probably there's some element of you know oh well election year campaign da 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 but then there's also been a hyper economic motivation um, and focus for this group, which makes sense. Uh, I mean, it works with the kind of election year, the character that he plays. Um, you know, businessman always keeping an eye on the money. Da da da. da. Uh, so you know, it's possible too that they wanted to minimize it because we know what happens when there's fear. <laughs> it's bad, bad for markets. So. You know, it could also have been that, you know, they might just take economic concerns more seriously than they take yeah. health outbreak concerns. I don't know. Not not to mention, you know, they have a generally anti 
expert, anti-intellectual, anti-scientific bent, and not to, and and also the kind of, you know, sort of ruggedness ethos of not complaining and I don't know, just getting through shit be tough. I guess in the end, it's surprising that they eventually did come around and now treat it as a serious problem. Ish. <laughs> well, because now we've sort of we've we got past that little bit of taking it really seriously. Yeah. We did our social distancing. Time to go back to work. Well, yeah, exactly. Now we're on to the everybody back at work by Easter. Yeah. Which, I mean, just so we're clear, I mean, there's a ton of uncertainty now with with the timing of this stuff, but all of the kind of rough models that I saw, um, regardless of how much the curve is quote-unquote flattened, obviously that will sort of change how long uh, the outbreak lasts. But in all cases, like the earliest that cases peak is like June or July. Right. So to to go back to work in a few weeks would be <laughs> very interesting to say the least and probably would undo most of the you know, the benefits of the, the social distancing that's been practiced thus far. I would guess. That that that's what the experts seem to be saying <laughs> from every article I've read as well. Uh and, and I think that's the real challenge here for the the Fox News viewer and for Fox itself. They've as you noted, they've spent years shitting on expertise and essentially poisoning the well of expertise. Uh, and now, even if they want to draw from that well, they've spent so long convincing their viewership that, you know, public scientists should not be listened to or taken seriously on issues like climate change, that they it's hard to then do an about face and say, yeah, but this time they actually the experts are reliable. There's a, there was an interesting philosophical piece posted the other day um, by Eric Schleiser and Eric Winsberg on this comparison. And they, they make an interesting case that the comparison between climate change and the coronavirus science is uh, not a particularly good analogy. And in some ways, I actually think that this makes the situation for Fox News even worse, because in the case of climate science, you have decades, if not a whole century of research underlying that science and the um, community, the, the sort of expert community consensus that has developed around that science. And given how uh, recent the coronavirus research is, there's obviously no, you know, long sort of standing trials and, and research and built up community consensus. And so in some ways, it is true that the coronavirus is actually on less, you know, isn't on as good a footing as the climate change science is. Yeah, I mean, the, the amount of uncertainty is still high, right? Just because yeah. of how quickly this is happening. <clears throat> right, sure. So so, so then what's the, what's the rational response to that? Um, higher uncertainty. So this doesn't, this doesn't mean like, that, you know, trust experts less or, or trust your gut more, trust your political leader who clearly is not an expert and doesn't pay attention to experts more. <laughs> Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You mean battery yeah, yeah, it theory doesn't... hasn't caught on yet? Battery theory? Oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Michael, you heard What's about ba- this? No, what, what is battery theory? Um, the president believes that we shouldn't 
exercise too much because your oh, oh, body is a I, battery that cannot yeah. be recharged and it will uh, yes yeah expand. i honestly that's one of those things where i don't know if that is mostly a meme um or if it's real um i i, I believe that quotes. that was yeah i think there's yeah i think i think that's real uh i wasn't sure if you i mean battery theory I, i'm pretty sure that battery theory actually was a popular theory in like the 15th century um <laughs> Before there were batteries, uh, like, <laughs> like no, 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 batteries like, are really old. They got batteries in like ancient, ancient Egypt. Yeah, they're probably salt, shit though. Salt water and copper and stuff. The underlying, the, the underlying idea, right? <laughs> that that you can't be recharged. That all you're doing is sort of exhausting your resources. Goes back. Hobbes was one of the first people that I I, I know of in um, Western philosophical history who challenged that idea and was like, exercise is good. Uh, <laughs> Philosophy of science is so much less depressing than what we're actually talking about. Like the history of philosophy of science, I should say. You, really, the history of anything. Yeah, let's go back to talking <laughs> Even about pandemics. <laughs> well, so part of the issue, right, with the Fox News is that, and you guys are kind of glossed over a bunch of different aspects of the problem. So one is the kind of echo chamber effect that news agencies like Fox are very effectively created for their audiences. Now, just quickly distinguish echo chambers and filter bubbles, because um, we often run these together, but they're importantly distinct. A filter bubble or an epistemic bubble, more generally, is just when your sources of information are limited in such a way that relevant information for you is being left out. So what's nice about filter bubbles is they're relatively easy to address, uh, provided that you can you know, believe that you're in a filter bubble and then expose yourself <laughs> to other sources. The problem with echo chambers is that echo chambers not only involve a kind of epistemic bubble effect where your information sources are more limited, but they also depend on a kind of in-group inside the echo chamber discrediting or lacking of trust of any sources that are outside of the echo chamber. So the only people that you should listen to and trust are the people who share your echo chamber with you. So p part of the reason why an echo chamber is much more concerning than a filter bubble is that if you're in an echo chamber by nature, you distrust anybody who's not in the echo chamber. With a filter bubble in principle or an epistemic bubble in principle, you just need to be exposed to other sources of information. You don't have this like underlying distrust of any information outside of the bubble um, because the echo chamber is more pernicious. So for Fox News, you've arguably got not merely an epistemic bubble effect happening. People are mostly listening to Fox News, but you've also got this kind of undermining of all expertise, undermining of all sources of information that aren't Fox, sort of rampant discrediting effect going on. So that for people who are really avid listeners of Fox News, they've also been trained to not trust alternative sources of information. So it makes it far harder for people to, you know, if they start, if they mostly listen to Fox, but they also start hearing news from other channels, you know, they may have been sort of doused in so much Fox hating on reporting everywhere else that they just don't know who else to listen to or who else to trust. And then if we want to, you know, make that even worse, you've got that issue of, um, well, the, the varied issue of all of the biases we have ourselves, regardless of our source of information, but the sort of aspects of motivated reasoning, confirmation bias, uh, desire to believe 
in any world that is not dystopic for ourselves. Yeah, so why don't we explain the motivated reasoning <laughs> stuff? Because that seems to be... because right, So the, the point of that <clears throat> piece you mentioned, Michael, <clears throat> part of it is just, again, there is a difference between the climate change stuff and or climate change consensus and expert opinion and uh, information that's coming from the expert community with respect to the coronavirus, which is just that, again, the latter stuff is so new that there's a lot of uncertainty. It hasn't been sufficiently studied because that's impossible to do in a very short period of time so there's a lot of uncertainty there now you might think that therefore uh with that much uncertainty given that some of the possible outcomes are absolutely terrible um, the risks are really high in that amount of uncertainty you should probably err on the side of caution right that that seems to be like a reasonable thing to do in that kind of situation but that comes into conflict with so what hannah just mentioned was the motivated reasoning that people engage in everyone human beings engage in which possibly explains a lot of what happens like we just explain more about what what that is and how that might have worked here so the uh really familiar example that most people probably know of right is that uh phenomenon you get with people who smoke uh who take themselves to be the single exception to getting cancer from smoking Right. I mean, are there many smokers who are going to say, yeah, I know the stats and I'm probably at risk, but I'm willing to take on that risk. It's really not how it works. People will say, oh, no, no, I'm a smoker. I'm not going to get cancer or I'm not going to get. So we we typically um, take ourselves to be the exception to the rule. Honestly, I can barely remember the the appropriate social psychology language. I have older Bishop Butler from the 16th century. Is that right? Is it 16th, 15th century? I don't know. Uh, Another one ages ago. He's got this nice piece um, about uh, improper partiality is the the phrase that he uses, um, where we're always prone to making excuses for ourselves, taking ourselves to the exception to the rule. When other people do bad things, there's no explanation for it. They're bad people. But when we do bad things, there's good justifiable reasons that show why we're not really bad for doing the bad things we do. So those kinds of familiar effects are part of this motivated reasoning picture. So we don't, we want to believe that we're going to be the exception. Even if everybody around us gets sick, we're not going to get sick. Even if other people around us are spreading the disease by going out in public, we're not going to be the ones to spread the disease. Uh, so that, that's a couple of the ways that this can. Yeah, actually, it's really interesting. I think in the the health case, I, I mean, I definitely see this among students and just even around the discourse right now. Like, So for instance, if you talk about, if you're talking about like luck, with students and you point out that like look, a lot of what happens to you in your life is dependent on luck it's just a life is shot through with luck and you you know you point out that like people get diseases uh through no fault of their own maybe you know uh, for genetic reasons or environmental reasons outside of their control or you know if you talk about cancer or something like that in the context of health insurance immediately what they want to say is well probably that was their fault right it was something they can control and i think part of that is um, right, is this feeling of being in control, and so their belief that this will not happen to me because I will, I will avoid it. I think this is partly this phenomenon, and and also right now people's like, and this is understandable that they really want to know, did the person who died from coronavirus have an underlying condition? Uh, I don't, <laughs> so I'll be okay. Uh, Even though the messy statistics that we've been gesturing at show us that no, actually, people who've been young and very healthy have gotten hideously sick from this um we don't know why (laughs) we also don't know why there are big groups of populations who have the virus and show almost no symptoms 
It's just incredibly varied. We don't understand yet why but, some people are so badly affected and why others seem to have no... You can understand why people, uh, why this phenomenon exists, take themselves to be the exception to the rule. Because the alternative is accepting, A, your lack of control, and B, that you might be screwed. And yeah. that is very <laughs> stress and anxiety inducing. And so it's much more comfortable to ignore that possibility. I mean, if you want to get inundated and people, well, it's probably a mess of things. Maybe some of it's attention. I don't know. But there are, you know, coronavirus forums on the internet, and platforms like Reddit and such, with people who are very much down the anxiety rabbit hole, um, having a <laughs> meltdown on the internet. So like, there are a lot of people taking that option. It's very hard, I think, to look at the statistics, um, look at the uncertainty in kind of a measured way, and have a kind of detached <laughs> kind of attitude to it, right? Because you don't want to get sucked down either path. You don't want to get sucked down. Well, you know, I'll go to a supermarket, somebody will cough on me, I'll probably be all right. But you also don't want to go down the path of, oh, yeah, no, we are screwed. I'm going to die. Like, you know, you kind of need, eh, maybe. I mean, it's pretty bad. Probably I should stay inside. Maybe I'll die. I not much you can do about it. Just truck on. We should get some of those That's Stephen Adams quotes. That's the New Zealand attitude. When they have Stephen Adams on the basketball <laughs> podcast, which one was that? That's the attitude you have to take. You know, shit will happen, but you'll you'll get on with it or you won't. I mean, what are you going to do about it? So what you're saying <laughs> is that for most of us, we can't we can't accept the fact that we will die one day and still live well. Yeah. It's something like that. Yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. I. It seems like they, in, for a lot of these particular, for the motivated reasoning, one of the sort of more general phenomena is just you need to believe things that are going to integrate well with your other beliefs, right? And so part of that, like partitioning of people into different responses, seems like it's cut along the lines of what are the other beliefs that you need to integrate with, right? So it's not that surprising that the Fox News viewer is more likely to end up in a state where they're more dismissive of it for self, you know, it's partly self-motivated reasonings, but it's also just easier to integrate with their, the rest of their beliefs, right? And that's one way you can sort of understand the Butler stuff. There's a self-conception that you need to integrate with. And so you have to think that you're the exception in order for that self-conception to cohere with all the other things that you believe. And that, that all seems right. And so like what people's starting point is, plays a pretty big role, I think, in where they're going to end up as far as how they end up evaluating this information that's coming at them. How are they going to integrate that? Are they going to end up on the extreme of the sort of the Reddit person who's freaking out or the Fox News viewer who's just like, eh. By the way, if if you want to see a great example of motivated reasoning, you can actually watch the press conference with Donald Trump where he's talking about chloroquine and the, uh, I forget his name, Dr. Fauci, this sort of uh, expert doctor who's sort of leading the coronavirus stuff is like, yeah, may, you know, there's trials, some um, anecdotal evidence right now, basically all these things, all the evidence is anecdotal at this point. Um, so, you know, we don't know. And Trump's like, it might work, it might not, but I have a really good feeling about it. <laughs> so that, there's the motivated reasoning part. And then right. he backs it up with a really shitty induction and he goes, and I've been right a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and his being so fantastically right has led one man to die and his wife to be in serious uh, medical condition um, for following his also, gut intuition about this drug. Um, oh, yeah, we, we, yeah, that was, yeah. 
we, we know that people are very good uh, at also evaluating the, the historical reliability of their judgments. That's, you know, something that everybody is actually yeah. very good at. Yeah. Uh, there's not a thing. Confirmation bias is not a thing that exists. You know what? Um, so there's very well known and the dynamic I'm about to express is probably going to be uh, enacted by some listeners. So I'm just going to put this. I'm going to put that on the front of this anecdote. Um, also, do you think the cat's snoring is getting picked up by the microphone? Because he's really loud. <laughs> anyway, there's weird honking in the background. It's just the cat. Um, gotcha. So, uh, you know, I, I, I teach epistemology. Um, confirmation bias is one of the psychological effects that I like to introduce, right? It's very important for epistemology to know that we're psychologically hardwired um, to... Poorly. <laughs> we're Sorry. hardwired to believe things that agree with what we already agree um, and to rationalize or explain away evidence that challenges those beliefs that we have. Um, so we're really you know, inclined to seek out information that's going to reinforce the worldview we already have. So one of the examples I like to use when talking about confirmation bias and the sort of anecdotal evidence stuff is the full moon, busy emergency room at hospital <laughs> uh, effects. So, you know, a lot of people believe um, that emergency rooms are busier on full moons because, as everybody knows, the full moon affects it all makes of us. It makes me crazy. Um, Werewolves. Yeah, it <laughs> gives us energy. We're all slightly, you know, werewolfish or something. I don't know. Anyway, I mean, this has been studied. Uh, it's not real. What's the explanation? People have these beliefs about the full moon. Uh, people who work in hospitals and clinics tend to notice when it's really busy and it's a full moon. They tend not to notice when it's really busy and not a full moon, uh, partly because full moons are novel and also partly because they've got this pre-existing belief about full moons. Yeah, you don't notice the moon when it's not full. That's, it's it's yeah. a big part of it. Who cares about the moon when it's not a full moon? But <laughs> Sorry, I, moon. Like invariably, whenever I bring this example up, I'll have one or two students who will say, my mum or dad's a doctor or a nurse, and they experience this effect. I had a friend of the family <laughs> as a kid who was a police officer who subscribed to this. Right. Which is like, okay, so all you're doing now is giving me an example of the anecdotal evidence that makes people believe that this effect is real. I sorry, but your family members are also just experiencing this confirmation bias. So, but they're anyway, experts. They're the experts, exactly. <laughs> no, it's a bad induction of anecdotal experience that fits with some weird, bizarre belief that we have. Um, so, for everybody who's sort of reaching for the well, last time I got a nasty flu, it wasn't that bad. I was okay. Yeah. So, so there's the um, motivated reasoning from the individual case, I'll be okay. But then when we're talking about like policy and what to do in response to this, was motivated reasoning at a much more macro level, right? And this partly explains why no major action was taken immediately because it's like, well, I don't know. Our healthcare system is good and advanced. Uh, you know, this is one of the things that would said that were said. So it'll probably be okay. It won't be as bad here. You know, it hadn't spread rapidly yet so who knows if it will um despite you know most of the experts were like yes 
absolutely it will <laughs> take this very seriously. I actually do think there's one line of reasoning that is at least slightly charitable to, um, you know, the the line that Fox has been given and given and, you know, people sort of on that side of, ah, eh, this is going to be okay. They look at um, the recent warnings from uh, WHO and other organizations about previous viruses like the swine flu, like SARS, and they say, look, this was overhyped and it had serious economic implications. The way in which our fears of those viruses impacted the global economy was really bad. And ultimately, our concerns were overblown. Therefore, we ought not to overreact now because otherwise we'll just be harming the economy and harming people in ways that we don't need to. Right? I think there's a sincere reading of some of the reaction that was along those lines. And that's one of the of course, there's two challenges there. One is the experts were saying, yeah, but this is fundamentally different. Like the epidemiologists are saying that when you study the network effects of this stuff, this is a different kind of virus than those kinds of viruses. So you should take this more seriously because it's going to play out differently. So that's one sort of challenging thing is when the experts have been appropriately cautious in the past, that actually in some ways has penalized their credibility uh, in the future. The other thing is, well, it's also very hard to evaluate when precautionary measures actually were effective for preventing something. And so another response I've heard is, okay, well, yeah, SARS and swine flu did not have these devastating effects. But part of that was the places where they broke out, people took it seriously. (laughs) That that is a fundamental Um, challenge, I think, to anyone who's in favor of proposing restrictions and anything that harms the economy, et cetera, et cetera, is, yeah, it's hard to see the evidence of effectiveness because you have to run a counterfactual which is very difficult and complicated what would things be like if we didn't do this right which is not a visible thing so every historical success of prevention actually then provides counter evidence against the the experts also being charitable to fox news you're gonna get roasted on twitter dude how (laughs) dare you how dare you practice charity here Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't give well, a shit I anymore. Just, I would just throw in that one of the things that does make this virus very different to cases like MERS, uh, SARS. SARS and MERS. MERS. SARS. So I get this interference with the MERS with the, like on rose thorns and cuts, that bacterial infection. MRSA. MRSA. Yeah. There yeah. we go. Anyway. Um, yeah. So I've already mentioned that some people, it just doesn't have very bad effects on them. They show very little symptoms. For other people, it's very severe. That's exactly what makes this part of this so hard, right? When you had, uh, you know, if you've got an Ebola outbreak or something, you've got people bleeding from various orifices, right? Like nobody's going to miss that. (laughs) Whereas when you're sort of not displaying symptoms for six, seven days and you're continuing your OE, your overseas experience traveling around the world slowly seeding this disease to people in you know cabins of airplanes and stuff like it's just a totally different kind of example um and so that's it plays into the epistemic problem right because then the primary thing that makes the virus uh effective is the thing that makes it escape detection so then it's hard for the experts to convey no this is serious because the very thing that actually makes it serious is yeah. the the fact that you can't detect it coupled very with easily. the uh, uh, severity of it i mean it's uh, so for just for point of comparison mers i believe the mortality rate for mers was like 
which is insanely high. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's part of the explanation for why not that many people ended up getting it. Likewise, for SARS, it was 10%, which is also extraordinarily high. But again, far fewer people got it. In this case, don't know anywhere between because there are so many cases where we probably haven't been reported just under 1% to 3% or something like that. That is very high for a disease that is spreading uh, as um, widely as this one is. And even if it ends up being, I was just reading a piece on this this morning that was um, sort of doing that comparison of, all right, which harm do you want to go with? Do you want to go with exposing people to the virus and the the sort of deaths and the illness that results from that, um, but open up the economy? Or do you want to keep the economy shut it down and go with... Um, you know, protecting people from death and illness from the virus, even if it's only 1% uh, death rate and you're looking at a country like the United States with 300 million people, you're still looking at a, a million people dying, you know? So it's um, it's still a lot, even if it feels low. Yeah. No, you know, I mean, I, New, Zealand, New Zealand has 5 million yeah. people. So that's like, you know, uh, I, think, I think we broke 5 million. Um, that's, yeah. you know, one, one out of five. Is a fifth of the country dying, right? Well, three, really. If if it was 1%, it would yeah. be 3 million, right? So then you're actually talking about right. three and five. And I'm, I'm part of the reason I'm putting it in yeah. contrast with New Zealand is because sometimes it's hard. If you're talking about 1% and you think about a population of 3 million people, uh, sorry, 300 million people, any um, generalization across bigger numbers like that is harder to take seriously. So if you take that same number of deaths, uh, for the American population, you just put it on a smaller country, then you're kind of like, oh, okay, that's actually that's actually a lot of people because that's actually that is a lot of people. A million people is a lot of people. <laughs> um, but it's right. I don't know for whatever. That's another one of these weird. Put in the context of your city population or your neighborhood, right? There's more. eight eight or nine million people in the Bay Area, so a million people in the U.S. dying is like an eighth of the Bay Area dying all at once, right? We're bad with numbers. We're really bad with big numbers. Uh, so I don't know. Sometimes those contrasts. The other the other thing worth pointing out is that there's been a ton of attention from the skeptics paid to the 1%. as like, ah, oh, that's not so bad, really. And that's not the only data point to pay attention to, right? Because it's like hospitalization rates dictate whether or not the our um, medical system can actually function. Right. And it's much higher. The actual number of people who need to be hospitalized is much higher than that. And if you just get a critical mass of people who require, you know, being in the ICU, then lots of other people are going to die from the sheer fact that the facilities that are normally available to treat other things are going to be unavailable because they're just overwhelmed. Right. Like people have pointed out, like like cancer patients in some cases just won't be able to get their treatments. Right. Um, you, you have to start practicing. A, and certainly in Italy, this was the case they have to practice a kind of triage where they have to basically adopt some kind of policy for who is who to prioritize um because uh care and resources are so scarce and and you can see our our healthcare system is already uh adjusting the way that people are being treated in pretty radical ways right now because of because of that and and so you have to factor in all of the harms that the healthcare system ends up inflicting on people due to the ways it has to change, right? So it's not just deaths either. Amy's cousin just uh, had an emergency C-section just because they didn't want to have the hospital beds taken up because they're preparing for the pandemic, right? right? Like pregnant mothers are now being required to sort of go in and have emergency C-sections and the entire hospital structure shifting 
as in anticipation of what's coming and all of that also you know has to be taken into account um when thinking through just how devastating this is i mean that's part of um so you know when people talk about pandemics and novels and movies and you know early planning 10 years ago about hey this is going to happen and when's it going to happen there's still that and this is just a i think this is just a complex of all of those different epistemic biases and trying to make sense of the situation is like well is this it right is this the big disaster that we've talked about hypothetically in the past or not like is it really is it really happening <laughs> now like is this is this it and things like that uh those like early c-section examples stuff like that that makes you feel like yeah maybe this <laughs> is it right like well, i don't know there's still that uh, question michael i know you it's had still a, early in 2020 be careful <laughs> yeah i mean who knows um <laughs> but you know when we were talking about this michael you brought up the chernobyl example and there's kind of a similar i think the same sort of mind frame yeah. here, right? Like, is this, is it really happening? Is it really that bad? Right. So it's the, the Chernobyl example that I, I we had talked about off air is the, you can read any of the, the books about what it was like to be in the room when Chernobyl was happening, um, because they're actually... You mean in the power room yeah, at the... Yeah, at the, at the at actual the Chernobyl plant. plant. Yeah. Um, but you, if you watch the HBO uh, miniseries that covers it, they, they cover this really well. And there's basically this phenomenon, and it goes along with what you were saying earlier, of the self-motivated reasoning that people have makes it basically impossible to integrate information that says, my lifespan is over, right? Like, that kind of information is just impossible to integrate with all of your beliefs about your life. And you could see... So in other words, they were presented with evidence that... The, they, they, they should they, have they, known that the plant had exploded... Uh, or one of the reactors had exploded and that they had all been exposed to catastrophic levels of radiation and were going to be dead within months. But it was basically impossible to integrate that, right? Because that requires accepting things that the human mind is not prepared to integrate. And when you face disasters like this, I, I mean, I don't know that we, I hope we're not at Chernobyl level disaster, but... If we are, I do know we wouldn't be able to accept it and to integrate that information. Right, and that, that's the only point that I want to bring up, right? And that brings us again to that that balancing act of the kind of catastrophize yourself into disaster um, or choose to believe nothing bad is happening when really you kind of need that pragmatic, practical, well, we'll just, we'll just act as though we can prevent it right, <laughs> right now, even if we can't. Let's act as though we can prevent it not succumb to whatever because we can't prevent it if it's that bad anyway so you know just get on with it but that kind of delicate <laughs> balancing act you need to be a Taoist sage is what you're you're saying basically <laughs> something like yeah. Now, the Chernobyl case, you were saying, Michael, actually has an interesting lesson here with respect to extrapolating data from what happened in China with the coronavirus. Oh, <laughs> you wanted the... So, so you you're telling to... us that Chernobyl could have could have been much worse, right? It, Yeah, it certainly... Chernobyl could have been absolutely disastrous for pretty much everybody 
on the planet, or at least most people in Europe and Asia, but they lived under a dictatorship. And so we're willing to do things that people in a democracy are not willing to do, right? Like imagine if Chernobyl had happened in the United States. So imagine Three Mile Island was actually at the level of Chernobyl. What does the United States look like today? Well, I would imagine that we we would not have been willing to throw human lives at the problem the way that the Soviet Union was readily prepared to throw human lives at the problem. And they had a history of doing that, right? Stalingrad is another example of them being willing to just throw human lives essentially away to address a social problem. And because of that, they were able to address and and mitigate the overall fallout of the problem in ways that democracies like ours would not be able to. One of the scary things is there is an analogy, right? And that uh, China what has been willing to take actions to really restrict their populations in ways that have now seemed to have gotten the the, the spread of the virus under control. And of course, one of the terrifying things is you have Trump as our president, Right, and it's good, ultimately. <laughs> well, no, because he wants the economy. <laughs> well, right, so yeah, you're torn. That's not really a concern. <laughs> I, but, but it is interesting, right? Because, you, you, yeah, I mean, typically, we, we take autonomy and liberty and a sense of freedom um, and a resistance to restriction to be virtues. Uh, and they are. But there are cases when it is convenient <laughs> um, to have a body with a tremendous amount of control that will sacrifice individuals for the sake of a larger social problem, as you said. Again, we we, we still would not choose that alternative. <laughs> I, I assume most people would not. No. Um, but, but we will do worse than China with this, for sure, uh, on this particular dimension. Partly for those reasons, of course. And then you, you say, well, look to South Korea, which, yeah. They did amazingly with this. It's fascinating. Seemingly through mostly just testing and really careful tracking. And, well, I guess one crucial thing, a greater sense of solidarity and <laughs> commitment to <laughs> to solving social problems. Yeah. So, I mean, you should it should be clear. You don't necessarily need uh, dictatorships to, no. to address this problem. Just but, but they can do better in some cases. Yes. Before we move on, I, I do want to just pause to say I really... Confident that Trump's not going to exploit this um, in the way that a, a typical dictator would? Because at the moment, yes, I can see that the desire to keep the economy up and running runs counter to those uh, tyrannical instincts that one would expect him to have. But what happens, you know, two weeks from now or two months from now when the experts are all saying, absolutely not, we cannot open the economy again? And keep in mind, it's not really up to Trump at the moment. It's up to state governors as to whether or not there are shelter-in-place orders and things like that. So after two months of the economy basically being shut down, which you know historically has uh, meant bad things for incumbents, but we're obviously in uncharted territory, so who knows? But down the road, it seems, I don't know, I, I fear that that could be where we're heading. Well, well let, me, let me just clarify. So... <laughs> I mean, in some ways, the desire to open up the economy against the will of experts is a kind of tyrannical expression. It's a, it's a weird one in that it's one that actually relaxes restrictions on 
citizens' rights. Um, so it's kind of manifests in a strange way. The other concern, of course, is that it's an election year and certain leaders in the world are using this crisis as a way to kind of extend their stay in power. Um, I suspect we will still have an election. I don't feel good (laughs) how it's going to (laughs) go. Well, so I I wonder about like, so as the, I I would, I I certainly hope that we still have an election. Um, but like, what are, what are the plans, right? Like presumably we're we're not all going to congregate and um, and share voting booths, right? So, right, uh, we're going to then need a restructuring of how we typically vote in this country, which would be great. Honestly, might be let's, a wonderful thing. Yeah. Let's mail. Let's have all mail in ballots. Fucking love that idea. Um, <laughs> well, mail in ballots that then have to sit in quarantine for five days, <laughs> so that That's the people fine. who count the ballots don't get sick from the ballots. Because electronic voting doesn't exactly inspire confidence. No. Um, and very quickly put together. Uh, yeah. Not, not that we've just had a, an example from the Democratic primary. Dude, we could have a sweet app, a voting yeah. app. It'll be brilliant. People <laughs> not, love apps. Apps are well. great. And, and, you know, don't worry about the, what are the figures we're seeing? At least 22% of the population who need access to computers for schooling, right? So we're talking about a smaller subset than the entire population who don't have access to the internet or computers. And we don't need to worry about their votes uh, if we suddenly went digital. I mean, those people's opinions probably don't matter. Um, well, it won't. that won't happen because Republicans would be screwed by that because older voters would disproportionately not vote, presumably, if it were digital. <laughs> but they're great at mail, way better than us. So That's true. My my grandmother still regularly sends me letters. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's oh, that's cool. Yeah, I like snail mail. Mm. I don't I don't have any pen pals. It's though. definitely endearing, um, but my inclination is just to email her back. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Does she does she then respond by snail oh, yeah. mail? <laughs> that's fantastic. That's A friend of mine way back in probably 2009 or 2010 uh, when Facebook was just starting to take off, started a snail mail version of Facebook. So he wrote (laughs) a post and then (laughs) sent it to people and they could, you know, draw a like on it or something and then post it on to another friend and they could slowly accumulate. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can help it grow by subscribing and by giving it a good rating or a review. And don't forget to check out our website, badlandsphilosophy.com, where you can find a list of citations for every episode and access written content that we post there regularly. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that through our website, and you can also find us on Twitter at at the Badlands Pod. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>